Well, open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Mark, chapter 14. And if you're not tuned in, you need to be. Because we're about to talk about the most important topic uh, known to man, known to the universe, known to eternity past, as they say, eternity future. We've come to the final act in the story of the Gospel of Mark, what Mark has been revealing to us for 13 chapters. Mark chapter 14 and what follows is the climax and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The the time for teaching is over. The time for confrontation is over. Now what Jesus has predicted since Caesarea Philippi, is about to take place. He's been telling his disciples all along, this is the reason that he's come into the world. He, he pointed to it in Galilee, in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he took them to Caesarea Philippi, told them plainly, rebuked Peter, you remember. God the Father tells the, the, the few disciples that are able to go to the Transfiguration to listen to... What Christ says, Jesus repeats it two more times to the disciples as a whole, and they're, they're slow to believe. And He has now withdrawn from the temple, and the temple rulers have withdrawn from Him. They're not confronting Him anymore. There are no more questions, no more lessons, only the final climb to the summit. If you were on Mount Everest, if Mark... Chapter 13 was Mount Everest. This would be the time when you, when you get your little oxygen bottle out and make the final summit. I mean, this is, this is pinnacle type of, of stuff. And this is what Mark has been saying from, from, from the very first verse. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He doesn't hide or veil in any way his purpose. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom. Here, this is what I'm going to tell you about. I'm going to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's been doing that for, for 13 chapters. And he's doing that because the cross is the linchpin that holds the gospel together. There, there's good and then there's news. And the reason it's good news is because the cross. It, it makes it good and it makes it news because it's something that that, that has happened. It's not something that will happen. It's the, it's the event that, that turns God's good intentions to God's good news for, for you and for me. But the cross is not just the fulfillment of the gospel of, of Mark. It, it's, it's the fulfillment of everything that God's been writing since, since the book of Genesis. The crucifixion and the triumph of Jesus Christ is the point of the entire Bible. In fact, it's the point of everything. It, it's, it's the point of creation. Colossians chapter 1 tells us, For by Him all things were created. That's Jesus Christ. And all things have been created through Him and for Him. Creation is for Christ. It's why God made you. It's why God made man. Isaiah 43, 7, Everyone who is called by My name, whom I have created... For my glory. And when God says that He made us for His glory, we're called by His name, so there's a creation and then there's a calling to where He is, becomes our God. When He says He made us for His glory, that doesn't mean He made us so God Himself can become more glorious because of us. 
as if He were incomplete or needed us to to make Him glorious. It, It means that He created us to display His glory, the glory that He already has. And that was the glory that might be known and praised in the cross like no other place. There's, there's, there's no other part of Scripture where God's glory can be put on display like the cross of Jesus Christ. There's, there's no other place in Scripture, there's no other event in Scripture that, 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 that God calls us to, to behold, and as Ephesians says, it, it's to the praise of the glory of His, of His grace. The cross is why God allowed the fall. I mean, have you ever asked yourself if God knew what Adam and Eve would do? Why create them? I mean, why put the tree in the middle of the, in the middle of the garden? Why allow sin and all this, all this rebellion? I hope you know that the answer is not that that the sentimental bird poem, you know, that likes on, um, uh, um, refrigerator magnets, magnets, you know, if you, if you love someone, set them free, and if they return to you, then they're yours. If they didn't, they were never yours to begin with. That, that, as if God needs affirmed by our choice. How belittling of God. It's because in the cross, God will get greater, greater glory than if there ever, than if there ever was one. There never was one. And the plan didn't start at creation or the fall. It wasn't like God was in heaven and He didn't know what was going to take place in creation before He made it. And it wasn't like He was in heaven after He made it and, and the, the serpent came up and tempted Eve and when, when God had His back turned, He said, oops, what, what do I do now? I mean, you obviously know that's not the God that's revealed in, in the Bible. The plan has always been that Jesus Christ would be worshipped in heaven by a redeemed people. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. John, you remember when in Revelation, the throne room scene. Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Where John looks through heaven and no one is found worthy to take the scroll from, from the Father. And he says, weep not, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed. And then there's worship that, that goes along with, with that scene. And John didn't just see a lamb that was worshipped, but the lamb was slain. He was being worshipped by the people that he died for. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, they sang a new song. What were they singing? What were they, what were they saying in their worship? Worthy are you to take the book and to break its sealed seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. I mean, Jesus was worshipped 24-7 before, before this point. But now through all eternity, He'll be worshipped as the Lamb who was slain. by. He'll redeem sinners by His own blood. And we'd be glorified by the people that He saved. The cross is why God makes the promise in Genesis chapter 3. It's why God preserved Noah and his family. It's why God chose Abraham. It's why God made a people out of Israel. The crucifixion of Jesus is, is, is linked to the law of Moses. It's the reason for the Davidic throne. It's the doorway into the kingdom. In fact, it's the culmination. It's part of the culmination of all things. The, the cross is, is part of the purpose of heaven. 
Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people. And he says he'll wipe away every tear and there will no longer be any death. The Bible says that God... This has been God's purpose, and now that purpose is being worked out in a specific time, in a specific place called Jerusalem, in a specific month, the month of of Nisan, the the specific moment in Passover, the the Passover feast, and we're about to behold the the eternal, purposeful, history-altering event in the Word. And if that doesn't get you excited for Mark 14... And I don't mean this as a slam. You might, you're you're likely not a Christian. I mean, have you ever thought? I mean, others have said this. It doesn't originate with me. But have you ever have you ever thought how bizarre it is that you wear you wear a cross around your neck or you you hang them in, in your home? I mean, we don't we don't hang guillotines around our neck. You know, these these things of execution. Why does the cross mean something to us? It means something to us because because Christ died and we understand that He died for us and and He He took away our sins and that's been the issue. I mean that's the issue of of, of all mankind, isn't it? I mean the death of Jesus Christ is is what caused Jews to stumble. It, it it's what leads Greeks to mock Gentiles to mock. The Jews have no problem with miracles or the general teachings of Jesus. They, they, they expected a Messiah. I mean, it's not about the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. They, they stumble over a crucified Messiah. And the Gentiles, uh, the Greeks, they, the, the, the unbelieving world, the, those that are not Jews, they don't, they don't have a problem with spiritual things. I mean, Lady Gaga's a Christian. Did you know that? The world doesn't have anything, any problem with, with spiritual things. Or even religious rules. In fact, they, they create very rigorous religious systems. And they find comfort in them. Touch not. Handle not. The fundamental issue that leads them to cry foolishness is grace that comes through God's death in our place. I mean, it's a bloody cross that separates men. It's the cross that brings the soul victory declared by the resurrection from the dead. And now what Mark reveals in these next few verses is the, is the prelude to that, or the prelude to that. The, all the human characters that play a part in the drama of the, of the cross. From chapter 14 on, there, there are three distinct parts of the, of the crucifixion. And we're entering into, into, the, into the first one. The main character in the Bible is God. God's purposes, though, are played out on a human stage, and individuals are part of that theater, and, and, and we're going to see the main event right now. And there, there are six individuals that play a part in the setting up of the triumph of the cross. And we're going to look at the first ones today. There's the rulers of the temple that plot against Him in verses 1 and 2. There's the woman who anoints Him in verse 3 through 9. There's Judas who betrays him in verses 10 and 11. There's the disciples who eat Passover with him in verses 12 through 25. There's Peter who denies him in verses 26 through 31. 
And then there's the God who plans it all. And there's no specific verse for him because he's Genesis to Revelation. And he's all over Mark 14 through the end. And I'm going to show you the first one today and then we're going to, then we're going to work through the, through the rest. Let's look at these plotting rulers. Look, if you will, in verse 1 of Mark chapter 14. It says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival. They don't want to kill him during the festival. Otherwise, is the reason, there might be a riot of the people. Mark begins telling us that the the cross will take place during a a definite occasion. Do you see that? It's the Passover and the unleavened bread. There's a definite occasion. Now, there's absolutely nothing in the Bible that's that's throwaway. And so while this is only two verses, every one of these statements are important and they're, they're purposeful. Mark says the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. So that's... Wednesday evening, just two days before the lambs were, were slain in Jerusalem. I mean, that's why Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem. And that's why all the pilgrims are there. That's why there's such a crowd. There's such a crowd there to cry Hosanna whenever Jesus presents himself as the, as the Messiah. It's why there were so many people on the road in Jericho and, and at the, the raising of, of Lazarus. Why everyone's talking about this because they, the Jews go for the high holiday to Jerusalem. And the point here is precision. God wants us to clearly understand what event is happening and when. And you see that. The Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. I mean, that's precise. And the Passover and the unleavened feast are, are connected because they both have to do with the, with the same event. They have to do with God's deliverance of His people from the bondage of Egypt. And the Passover, every year, is held in the, the month of, of Nisan. It's, that's April, May. And that moves around. It's celebrated on the 14th of the month, the month of Nisan. This is one of the ways that we know when Jesus died. It's not like Christmas. It is specific. It's why Easter changes Every year. And the feast started on the 14th before sundown and continued into the early hours of the 15th on, between sunrise and sunset. This was immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And why they're, that's why they're presented together. The Feast of Unleavened Bread started on the 15th and then it went through the, the 21st. Seven days. And they're so closely connected that, that you'll hear them referred to as the Feast of Passover. Lasting a, lasting a, a week. A over. But what they commemorate is very important, and that's connected to the cross. The Passover remembers God's judgment passing over the homes of the Israelites. And why did they, why did the, why did God's judgment pass over the homes of the Israelites? Because they by faith applied blood to their doorposts at the command of God. God told them what to do, and by faith they, they did it before the judgment ever came. And when the death angel went through the land of Egypt, it killed the firstborn of every home without the blood. 
And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread immediately followed, and it commemorated the actual departure from Egypt. So the final plague where God displays His power against the, the gods of Egypt, and He brings judgment. After that takes place, then they, they, they leave. There's the actual departure. And the Jewish people took unleavened bread as God commanded it, ate it with their sandals on due to their quick flight. And, and the bread was without leaven or yeast, and that came to represent the removal of, of sin in their lives. It's a pretty clear picture of, of salvation, isn't it? Israel had been in Egypt, which was godless. They didn't worship the... The one true and living God, it was full of sin, and God sent His messenger Moses to warn them of the coming judgment, to warn not only the Jewish people, but, but Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They refused to listen to God's messenger, and so when the judgment came, they all died, and the Jewish people listened to God through His messenger, and the, the, the blood covered their sins and protected them from the judgment that, that came. And now they were to come out and, and, and be free from sin as they followed God to depart out of Egypt. And you too were born in, in a spiritual Egypt, if you will, in sin. And God's judgment is coming. And He's warning the whole world. He sends His messenger to tell us that if by faith you will apply the blood of Christ, then God will pass over your sin as well. And, and then... After we embrace that, we are to come out of the world. We're to live an unleavened or a holy life unto the Lord. And then we spend the rest of our lives remembering God passing over our sins and calling us out to, to follow. This is no mistake that the death of Jesus was on Passover. That's the point. It's always been planned on Passover. Don't ever think that Jesus was some puppet caught up in, in something that he couldn't control. He was... The book of Acts says he was delivered by the predetermined plan of God. Listen to Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's first sermon after the resurrection. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourself know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, And God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by his power. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10? No one takes my life. I lay it down myself. This is a definite occasion. The definite occasion of Passover is why John the Baptist, who was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, when he sees Jesus, points him out and says what? Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. I mean, there's no mistake that John says, oh, let me find a metaphor that, that, that I'm just pulling out of, my, out of my brain. I mean, he knows. Behold the Lamb of God. The Passover is what the Jesus is, the Lamb. And He dies on Passover is what Genesis 22 foreshadows. When Abraham took Isaac, his promised son, his prophesied seed, and placed him on an altar. And, and at the moment he was about to sacrifice him in obedience to the Lord, God stayed his hand. And, and do you remember what he said? Now look at what he said. I can get it to stay. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, and said, and it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Do you know where Abraham took Isaac to offer him? Do you know where the mount of the Lord is, where where a substitute would be provided, and, and they'll talk about this will be, the Lord will provide, and there will be, he'll provide in the mount ever since. This moment of Abraham and Isaac, you know where that is? It's, it's Mount Moriah. It's Jerusalem. It's where Solomon built the first temple. It's where the second temple that Jesus just says is going to be destroyed was placed. It's where the Passover lambs were sacrificed. It's where Jesus Christ was crucified. There's no mistake. This is no mistaken occasion. Now, if God could be supposed so specific, in the very day of Christ's death, during the very festival that he has, he's designed in Egypt, on the very hill foreshadowed in Abraham's sacrifice, do you think that you're here this morning by mistake or by chance? Regardless of what you do with Jesus Christ, this is no mistaken occasion for you. The Bible says today is the day of salvation, and you're here to hear. And maybe this day you'll not bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. But you're here to hear this message, and you're not here by chance. And if you don't confess Him as Lord, you'll likely do what the rulers did, and that's try to rid yourself of the truth of the message, and maybe even by Jesus Himself. There is a definite occasion, and then there's some determined conspirators that Mark reveals to us. Look a little further. Verse 1. It says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. There's the definite occasion. And here's the determined conspirators. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth. And kill him. I mean, there's no no veiled motive in their heart, is there? The Bible says that God's own people would reject him the first time, and that was part of the plan too. Obviously, that wasn't every Jew. The disciples were Jews. The book of Acts begins by thousands who heard the message that we just read from or heard Peter mention. Thousands who repented. In Acts chapter 6, it even says, many of a number of the priests believed. But Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It says, we esteemed him not. Luke 19.44 is when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. It's because the majority of Israel missed the day of His visitation. It's how John starts his gospel, isn't it? John chapter 1, He came into His own and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him to them, He gave the right to become the children of God. In the same week, 
you find Hosanna and crucify him. Not from Gentiles, but from Jews. They go from give us the son of David to give us Barabbas. And the leadership in Jerusalem has never been mingled and, and fickle. I mean, just as God's plan has been marching toward this event in Mark 19, this is not the first place that there's some determined conspirators. I mean, if you go back to Mark chapter 3 in verse 1, listen, Mark chapter 3, this is Galilee. We, we've come a long way since Galilee. Jesus first begins His message, uh, his, his ministry, and He's preaching in the synagogue in Galilee. And it says in Mark 3, they were watching Him so that they might accuse Him. And listen to what verse 6 says. Mark 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Him how they might destroy Him. The Pharisees and the Herodians. Two out of the three controlling groups of the temple. And then in Mark chapter 3, a few verses later, they send the delegation of scribes up from Jerusalem to evaluate His miracles. They can't deny the miracles that He's doing, and so they say He's doing it by the power of Beelzebub, of Satan. That's chapter 3 of the book. And He's only been preaching a few months. His entire family tried to kill Him. In Nazareth, you remember Luke chapter 4, Nazareth, the great Isaiah scroll. I mean, Nazareth is only like 400 people. I mean, it's a small town. You think everybody's related in West Virginia. You should have been in Nazareth in Jesus' day. Everybody's related. Everybody knows Him. And He opens up the great Isaiah scroll. He reads Isaiah 61 and says, Today, this Messianic prophecy is fulfilled in your ears. And what did they say? Ah, oh, the Messiah. We've been looking for Him. They take him out to the brow of the hill and try to throw him off, to stone him to death. These were mingled relatives. They said, is this not Mary's son? Is this not Joseph's son? I mean, we know this guy. His immediate family even comes to Capernaum. and tried to lay hold on him because they said he was mad. And that's, that's the scene where... where Jesus is teaching His disciples, and they say, your mother and brothers are outside. And he says, behold, my mother and brothers. This is my family, the family of God, not, not, not those outside. Mark says that, that they came from Nazareth because they think He's nuts. And they want to take Him back and, and put Him in a, you know, I don't know, it wouldn't have been a rubber room, it would have been a stone room. I don't know what they had back then. They think He's crazy. Why do they want to kill Him? Why, from Mark chapter 3... Does everybody want to kill Jesus Christ? What did, ever he, what did He do to them? I mean, besides healed people, fed people, told them how to get to heaven, told them how to get their sins forgiven? Well, Jesus tells us exactly why in John chapter 5. Jesus said, My Father is working until now. He's been working up to this point. The Father didn't just start working when Jesus showed up in, in Jerusalem. My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Oh, wait a minute. You're getting a little close there. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but He was calling God His own Father and putting Himself on the level of God. They knew exactly what Jesus Christ was saying. And they didn't like it. They wanted to kill Him because He rejected their system, he didn't obey their, their extra rules on the Sabbath. He claimed to be Messiah, and he was declaring himself equal with God. 
And there was a reason for that. He was, right? <laughs> That's why you can't make Jesus anything other than who He says He is. He's, he's the divine. He's the Messiah. Because as, as it's been said before, if not, then He's a liar because He claimed to be that. Or He's crazy. Or He's the Lord. And they wanted to kill Him. Because He said He was the Lord. And one thing's for certain, He was innocent. They want to kill Him. They, they, they are seeking how to seize Him by stealth and to kill Him. And, and He was absolutely innocent. If there was ever anyone innocent, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not innocent. I'm not innocent. Christ is innocent. MacArthur said what the leaders accused Him of, He didn't do. They finally accused Him of leading an insurrection against Caesar, and He didn't do that either. They punished Him for what He didn't do. God punished Him for what He didn't do. The cross is the most evil act ever perpetrated by evil men, and yet the most wonderful and loving act ever perpetrated by God. It's the worst miscarriage of justice in history, and it's the greatest satisfaction of justice in history. The cross is human injustice at its worst. It's also the greatest act of divine justice. And even though God killed him for sins he didn't commit, God killed him for sins we did commit. Amen? Isaiah 53.10 said the Lord was pleased to bruise him, putting him to grief as a guilt offering for his good pleasure. And these men give reason for their careful plotting. Jesus Christ died in your place. And they give reason for their careful plotting, and it wasn't because He did anything. And it confirms some very interesting things. There's a definite occasion, Passover and unleavened bread. It's specific because it was part of God's plan. There are some very determined conspirators, and they're determined because who Jesus claimed to be. And then there's also some described reasoning here. Look at verse 2. explains exactly what they're planning. Why it says by stealth. We know why they wanted to kill him, but why by stealth? Verse 2. For they were saying, not during the festival, not during the Passover, or or... Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. Confirms some very interesting things. Verse 2. Here's the described reasoning behind their plotting and revealing truth in their reasoning. Now, they plotted to kill him from Galilee. Tried to kill him in Galilee. Tried to kill him in Nazareth. And now he's entered Jerusalem on the Passover. And he ramped up the issue. I mean, he's the one. Jesus is the one that presents himself as the Messiah. According to Zechariah 9, 9 on the cold. He came into their temple. At least they thought it was their temple. Turned over their tables. They were their tables. He's embarrassed them in the confrontations. And they want him gone. But they have a concern. They want to do it by stealth because they didn't want, they didn't want to riot. This wasn't to protect the people, but to protect themselves. 
the one thing that they didn't want to do. I mean, think about this. Think about how the, the plan of God is so clear in verse 1. Now, the Passover and unleavened bread in two days. And look at what they're trying to do, what they're attempting to do. The one time they don't want him to die is on Passover. And when does he die? He died at 3 o'clock on Friday at the very moment they're slaying the Passover lambs. Exactly the times the leaders didn't want to kill him. Exactly the time that God determined that he would die. And their reasoning reveals their motive. It was selfish. And they thought they were in control, don't they? They think they're in control. They didn't want to risk bringing the Romans down on them. They didn't want to risk messing up the the high holiday where they were the centerpiece rather than God. And yet Jesus died exactly when God determined He would. There's a little bit of irony here. May I say to you there's a similarity if you're outside of Christ today. You might be able to point to some religious activities and some deeds you've done, but deep down, whenever God sees your motives are about yourself and not God. It's self-preservation, self-protection, self-exaltation, self-righteousness, self-whatever. Because if your motive was truly loving God, then, then you'd give up your life and you'd follow Christ. I may also say to you, you're not in control either. You might have every intention of doing all kinds of things. You can plan your life and all that you're going to do, but, but God says that your life is a vapor that appears and vanishes away. The strongest anchor that you think holds you, like Edward says, is like a spider web dangling over a flame. Gone. You're one phone call away from everything falling apart. You're one diagnosis. You're one, you're one anything. And all of the confidence that you think you have, everything that you think you're standing on, just crumbles away. The facade falls. The house of cards falls down on top of, its, of itself because you're not in control. And just like the rulers... You've made choices, and you'll continue to do so. But God is the one who brings you face-to-face with Jesus Christ. He brings you face-to-face with the cross this morning. And you can remain, you can choose to remain in your opposition and fulfill God's plan of justice and judgment. Your rejection of Jesus Christ will still fulfill God's plan of justice and judgment. He doesn't desire you to do that. It's the whole reason that Jesus came. But if you reject Jesus Christ, God's justice will be put on display in your judgment for all eternity. Or you can repent and fulfill God's promise <laughs> that anyone who will turn to Christ will be forgiven. You see, the, the Passover promise was made by God, and but the Jews had to apply the, the blood to their doorposts. And if you do that, when judgment comes, God will pass over your sins as well. 
because the Passover lamb has died. And all of that is for His purposeful glory. The satisfaction of divine justice so that God might give to His Son a bride so that through His Son's death the Lamb might receive the reward of suffering and be worshipped for all eternity. And the reward that Jesus gets for His suffering on the cross is a people that would praise Him forever and ever and ever. You see, the whole thing is not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. It's so heaven might be populated with people who give glory to Christ. And the Father loves the Son, and the Father desires to give the Son redeemed people so that they can praise Him and adore Him and worship Him and love Him and serve Him. And when all the earth will be gathered before God, Jesus Christ as the Creator becomes Jesus Christ as the Redeemer, which makes Him Jesus Christ the Reconciler, and all creation will be reconciled to Him. And you'll be reconciled either through your judgment or you'll be reconciled through salvation by calling upon His name. And the choice is yours. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and that through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The Creator becomes the Redeemer, and because of that, He is the the Reconciler. So what will you do? The blood is offered, and by faith you can apply it to the doorposts of your own heart. And when the judgment comes, God will pass over you. Should you bow your heads.